Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, we're back. This is the final episode of season two of Everything Else. This is the FT's Culture Podcast. That was Griselda, and I'm John, and in today's episode we're going to be talking about the dearth of good culture coming out over the summer, like every summer. And celebrating the best of lowbrow culture. Yeah, so basically this is a lowbrow summer trash special for you all. But actually it's not all lowbrow today. In the interview segment of the podcast we're going to be hearing from the Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist Elizabeth Strout, who recently published her amazing novel, Anything is Possible. Summer ties together this podcast. It's finally here in London. Summer has arrived. And how many months do you reckon we get? Two months? <laughs> how many weeks, I think, is yeah. more, more the question. You never know in London, so you have to make the most of it. Yeah, and it got us thinking about what books and music we're going to be listening to over the summer. We're both going off on holiday, and I packed my books and packed some very trashy books as well. <laughs> what are you going to be reading? What's in your suitcase? One of my beach reads is by um, former Arsenal captain, the footballer <laughs> Tony Adams, and it's called Sober, which is the follow-up, the long-awaited follow-up, or not, to Addicted, his um, memoir from, I don't know, a decade ago or further so back. So that, that is your beach read? I have got other highbrow beach reads, but we're not going to go into those today because this is, as we've said, going to be a podcast devoted to all things trashy. So I'm off to France and Spain soon, and you're off on holiday as well, aren't you? Yep, I am going to California, in fact, next week, as I'm telling everybody in the office, taking much delight nice. in that. I'm very excited about it. LA? LA to San Francisco and everything in between. So we're both off on nice holidays, and I'm also sad face off from the FT, <laughs> so you're not going to have your podcast, buddy. Sad face, yeah. This is, in fact, the last podcast that John and I are recording together. The podcast will be back later yeah. in the summer. There will be series three. There will be a series three. But John, you're going on to new new and better things. things. I'm going to be kind of you're going, to be going around London listening to you guys. <laughs> How strange. Just sending you like loads of critical emails and yeah, RC emails like I always do. mean things to me. <laughs> So yeah, so we wanted to have some fun with our last uh, final session in the studio together. So we thought we would go for this uh, summer lowbrow bumper edition. Summer is traditionally a time when high culture sort of goes on holiday. There aren't new big theatre productions, opera productions. The auction houses sort of like close down for the summer. Yeah, all the galleries save their big art shows for kind of September. Yeah, all of that side of things sort of goes quiet. But this leaves a gap in which lowbrow culture can bubble up from the bottom yeah. and fill the space. I mean, yeah, it's the season of beach reads. And also I have a very long list of what I'm sure will be terrible films coming out. They're all kind of number three or four or five in the franchise. It's silly season cinema. There's um, The Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Spider-Man, all of these films. Pirates of the Caribbean still going. Traipsing on, yep. And partly what we want to kind of celebrate today is it's a good thing to kind of switch into this kind of mode and celebrate all things trash. Yeah, it can be quite liberating, definitely. And with us today is India Ross. She also works on FT Weekend. She watches loads of TV, listens to loads of music, and she's going to help us navigate all the lowbrow trash we've got to look forward to in the months ahead. 
India, thanks for joining us. Not at all. So we've all been to see Baywatch, which I think we can agree is the film which defines kind of trashy as trashy can be summer culture. So this is a remake of the 90s TV show, which probably needs no introduction. And the film stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Zac Efron. They're kind of battling it out for the top spot as lifeguard on the bay. Yeah, Brody is a former Olympic swimmer who wants to join their elite team of lifeguards in California. And he kind of rubs uh, Mitch up the wrong way. Yeah, he's got like an attitude problem, basically. Yeah. Hey, Seth. Hey. New Kids on the Block here is from Iowa. Oh, really? Let me ask you this. A lot of oceans in Iowa? No, just ponds and lakes and cocky pretty boys. Hey, Mitch, what happened to that last pretty boy recruit we had? He died. What is this? Lifeguard hazing? I'm Matt Brody. Hold the world record in the 200 meter. Hey! Matt Brody. Matt Brody, yes, absolutely. And we still don't, don't give, give up. A- India, you, you watch a lot of good films, but what did you think of Baywatch? Um, Baywatch might be one of my top five most excruciating cinema experiences ever. It was <laughs> it was offensively, shockingly bad. I went in with some expectation that it might be kind of funny. I went by myself. I tried to get a few friends to come and they said, no way. <laughs> it's quite uh, a hard sell. Are you serious? Your friends didn't want to go? They were like, I knew they didn't have plans and they were like, I'm sorry, I just can't do this to myself. <laughs> I thought it could be funny. Baywatch is an inherently hilarious premise it's aged so badly you know with the slightest bit of self-awareness it could have been hilarious it was borderline offensive the jokes were terrible the this is what i wasn't expecting that and i don't know whether Mm. it was because the delivery was so unfunny it just kind of came across as it was oh my god and i know it's not like a serious film but like the jokes they were making they're like gendered like one guy insults another guy by saying he has a mangina you know it's like it's 2017 signing off on this there are loads of like dick kind of jock culture jokes like men if they're kind of not super masculine that's like the most mortifying thing in the world it's primarily a showcase for The Rock slash Dwayne Johnson and Zac Efron's bodies which I think we were all pretty unanimously horrified by as well they look so full of steroids like they're going burst it's it's quite scary it's like an anatomy lesson It's just yeah. unbelievable. Griselda, you didn't know what you were looking at. I, no, I mean, someone mentioned his six-pack. I was like, it's like a... I didn't know how many packs there are here. I can't even count them. The muscles are just rippling. By the end of the film, I was like, is it even fair to use this as a sort of model of blockbusters today? It's so much worse than anything I've seen before. It's so much worse than Mad Max, than, you know, Wonder Woman, which just come out. You know, it's it's offensive. They achieved the impossible. It was stupider than the original. Yeah. But it was, it was trying to be quite kind of self-referential. It had David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson had these silly... That's a major spoiler ca- alert. Cameos. Well, I <laughs> that mean, Pamela was in the film. I don't think we're selling it to the listeners here. They're, they're making all these references. There's lots of slow-mo running, there's lots of jiggling bosoms and bums and lots of flesh <laughs> on the show. But somehow this self-referential, kind of self-ironising stuff just doesn't work. Yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't make it, it funny off. that the tone is wrong. Like, even and, you saying it, that sounds funny. I'm like, that would be a funny film that I would watch, but just somehow they completely... It kind of kills it dead. It just I, I think there's dies. also some quite odd kind of racial stuff going on. At the very beginning, there's this opening montage of Mitch just, like, saving the day, and this guy asks him are you Batman? And he's like, sure, pal, just bigger and browner. I'm just like, that's not okay. That's not funny. It is just so tone deaf in so, in in every conceivable way it's tone deaf. It's just, it shocks me this film ever got 
greenlit. The I just can't. Not, it didn't need to be made, I don't yeah. think. Do we think if the acting was better, it could have saved this film? No. Because <laughs> it's <gets> fundamentally flawed. <laughs> but, it has, I mean, the plot is bloated, the acting's terrible. Daniel Day-Lewis like, could not have saved this film. No. It, was, it was just absurd. So Method much acting would have been a bad idea. Right. <laughs> so Seth Gordon, who directed it, I watched an interview he gave about the film, and you would think he would give the interview in quite relaxed, high spirits, you know, making a few gags, not taking himself too seriously. He is so serious about this. It's like some kind of masterpiece. He said the action is really different and original in this film. You go to places that we haven't really gone to before in film. Arguably, that is true. I mean, I don't, I don't know. New if I've low been to a is a like I think since like Fifty Shades of Grey, I haven't been that uncomfortable. Griselda and I were saying we were like struggling not to look at our phones. The, weirdly, when it first started with this opening montage that I mentioned, I almost kind of enjoyed it because it was like the novelty of seeing something so bad. I feel like it was a sort of throwback to the days of being a teenager where you have no taste and you don't distinguish between yeah. things that are good and bad and you're only really exposed to the worst high school movies. But we were talking about this earlier about like comparing this to something like American Pie which is still hilarious to me. It was hilarious then. It was hilarious. Because American Pie is kind of good bad. Yeah, it's good bad. And it, this it, is just it's, bad bad. Right. It's just it's genuinely funny and it has some kind of soul as well. You know, this film had no soul. It was just awful. It was so calculated. Yeah. But then not even successful in oh it's just yeah. the thing that really annoys me as well is the one good thing that people have been saying about Baywatch is that okay it's terrible but at least it's not sexist we're like objectifying Zac Efron and The Rock just as much as we're objectifying all of these women that but is, actually that's just not true the no. women are like total decoration in this film they have yeah so there's Priyanka Chopra who plays this real estate mogul drug smuggling kind of baddie but apart from that None of the women in this film do anything except no, just run around in no, slow The men don't either, they're, really. the, they're the main characters. No one does anything, but there's this excruciating moment about two-thirds of the way through where The Rock suggests that this woman should take his role. He's like, oh, if I have to leave, you know, she must lead the team as if he's such a great guy. He's so magnanimous in, like, suggesting a woman should be in charge of something <laughs> and everyone takes a minute to, like, congratulate him on his... Oh. Yeah, I mean, I guess this film is for people who liked the... TV series and we're all probably a bit too young as well to have really enjoyed it like yeah. in, in the 90s we were watching cartoons you know we weren't no, watching Baywatch I, I was did, watching Baywatch I did watch really? Baywatch yeah, I was definitely. too young to I, appreciate I the nuances wasn't. of it I rewatched Baywatch this yeah the morning. hard worker you are diligent exactly. worker you putting are putting in some time and <laughs> It's the same. It's it's slightly worse, if anything, the the movie. But it's the kind of like hackneyed jokes, the awkward dialogue, the like shameless appreciation of people's bodies. It's the exact <laughs> same. It's just, it's yeah. Okay, listeners, don't worry. That's nearly enough of Baywatch. We're going to quickly round off by our low light of the film, of which there were many. I mean, I had a long list, but my favourite one was when they were in the morgue and Mitch somehow tricks Brody into holding a dead man's penis in his hand and then he takes a photo. <laughs> oh, my God. It's bad. And um, the location of the morgue actually exhibits even fewer signs of intelligent life than the movie, which is quite special. <laughs> so, India, what was your low point? My personal low point was when... The Rock slash Dwayne Johnson was on a burning boat at the sort of climax of the action and the CGI effects were so bad that it looked like he was a weatherman standing in front of one of those like green screens with like cartoon like smoke and flames. How does it not even have the redeeming feature of like good effects? Like imagine how much this film costs. If you don't have anything else, surely some like legit flames, but but no. 
I mean, there were so many low points. The one that springs to mind is when um, the chubby geek computer analyst character gets his erection stuck in a sun lounger. I mean, for me, that just like sums up the film. <laughs> it's a bit, bit of a bad moment. And the scene goes on for about 10 minutes, which it really doesn't yeah, need it does. to. it does. So that is enough of Baywatch. <laughs> what else is coming out this summer? India, is there anything that you're looking forward to? Or are we looking ahead to a summer of total trash in the cinema? I don't think it's a summer of total trash. There is some good stuff coming. There's uh, Sophia Coppola's much-anticipated Civil War drama, The Beguiled, which did very well at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of interesting examples of this sort of high-low kind of dichotomy. The Christopher Nolan film Dunkirk, which is coming out, and he's uh, previously directed films like Inception. That is starring Harry Styles, I was though, of say. One Direction. So <laughs> we're getting a bit of low, that's the nod to lowbrow summer exactly. culture. Uh, I don't know if Harry is the star, but I believe he makes some kind of appearance. <laughs> also on TV, we've got the return of Game of Thrones, which had a pretty obscene marketing effort over the past few months which people have been getting very excited about so how does the low high or lowbrow highbrow thing work with game of thrones well i am not a fan i'm doing my absolute best to get on board with it but i have abortively tried to watch it about three times and i just do not understand what's going on with that and the world but game of thrones is a great example of something that to me has all the hallmarks of total trash it's it's hackneyed. It's the acting is terrible. The I mean, the the plot is pretty complex to be fair, but it's Dungeons and Dragons legitimised on screen. But it's but you know then you've got people. You've got Zadie Smith writing that it's a masterpiece. You've got Clive James writing about it in the New Yorker. It creates a world in the way that something like Baywatch doesn't create. A yeah, plausible world with yeah. intricacies and shade and you yeah, know. exactly. Well, this is the problem. Baywatch could have been done in a much kind of smarter way this and is, everyone yeah. does like indulging in kind of lowbrow stuff of course we all do but the thing that for me was was just sort of troubling about Baywatch is that I think I've come to expect things to be low high or high low you know you, when you go and see a blockbuster you expect that it will have some some Those edge kind of some irony yeah, knowing references self, yeah. you know self-awareness and that's why I was so taken aback by Baywatch and it's sort of lack of that and I think similarly yeah, with with Dunkirk and Christopher Nolan, I think Christopher Nolan's a really interesting director because he makes what I would dub brainy blockbusters, you know, films like Inception that you could argue endlessly about whether they're any good or not. They are blockbusters, but they also have something They have a kind of conceptual... Say, and they ha- heft, yeah, they have a conceptual yeah. kind of centre and... I don't know what it is. Like, there's a trend for not kind of anti-intellectualism, but there's certainly a sort of reaction against intellectual snobbery... I don't know why. I think, you know, it's... Yeah, it's like in the LRB now, you're in the London Review of Books now, you'll read kind of like a long essay about Made in Chelsea or in M Plus One, exactly, my yeah. favourite literary journal, you'll read vastly long essays about yeah. Drake. And it's this kind yeah, of... Exactly. Drake is also a really good example of, you know, someone who's written about a great length, even though Drake kind of like an idiot. <laughs> you know, you see Drake and you're like, gee, God, what are but you it's, doing? But it's this thing of like, we take pop culture as seriously as we take high culture now. Exactly, it's like yeah. a collapsing yeah, sure. of, it's like, collapsed. of how we kind of treat these forms. I, th- I wonder if it's an identity politics thing. I think... A sort of cultural snobbery is associated with a certain type of person, you know, arguably with whiteness and with wealth. And kind of cultural elitism. Cultural elitism, which, which I think is, is a, a sort of thing. is a sort of no-go area these days. I don't think people want to be associated with it. And also I think it's sort of to do with the internet as well. I think social media has kind of democratised culture. I think we experience things collectively. And so pop culture is way more important in our everyday lives and we're all exposed to the same stuff. It's led people to think more seriously about pop culture, which I think is really good in a lot of ways, but also a bit alarming in other ways. Which brings us quite nicely on to music and what is going to be the sound of the summer. There's always kind of one or two absolute bangers which everyone is always listening to. 
So, yeah. guys, what are your songs of the summer, John? <sighs> I <laughs> can't believe I'm admitting. <laughs> no, because I've had I've been embarrassed by this song on several occasions now. <laughs> it is um, so. <laughs> So it's it's by Ed Sheeran. Oh God! No, listen, hear me out. No, but to make Ed Sheeran even remotely palatable, you need to kind of either remix or add someone onto the song. So it's the remix Storms you did with him. Um, Such an awkward combination. Uh, it's an unbearable combination. Called um yeah, Shape of You. You've obviously, I bet you two listen to it. I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. Although my heart is falling too. I'm in love with your body. Oh, I mean, admittedly, you really are waiting for Stormzy to come in around 1 minute 30. Yeah, to save the day. Yeah, you're like, Stormzy, please do please something about yeah. this. I've got to tell you I'm in love with your shape. You said the mother brothers couldn't really juggle your weight. And you were shy in the beginning, used to cover your face. You got that sweet, sweet love and I'm a sucker for cake, I know. But embarrassingly, so the two embarrassing moments I've had. One, I was cycling to meet someone and I was just standing there with my headphones and I didn't realise they were there. They came up behind me, took my earphone out and they were like, what are you listening to? And it was just the Ed Sheeran bit. And I was like, oh my God. So I was destroyed. And then the other time, and this maybe was worse, I was in an Uber with some friends and we were playing music through my Spotify on the Bluetooth and a friend took my phone and Ed Sheeran was top of my search <laughs> list. But, your most so I'm track. kind of out about it now and I don't really care anymore. Tell us what you like about it. Well, it's a classic boy meets girl story. <laughs> Ed Sheeran's into that a girl's a... body and tells her about it. They go for a date at a Chinese restaurant, so he obviously works in sweet and sour into his lyrics. <laughs> the clever. Great metaphor. Yeah, so nod to kind of where they're at and how compatible they are despite having differing personalities. So, you know, it's very <laughs> clever as well. But basically, I just really like Stormzy and this is unbelievably catchy. The thing about Ed Sheeran is we're talking about like lowbrow stuff, but I think if you're lowbrow... You need to have something else to give people if you're not giving them quality. But he's neither highbrow nor cool nor interesting. Yeah, that's he why you bring no Stormzy on board. I do qualities. think he's very talented. He's just yeah, yeah no, no, he, he just is, has yeah. no taste. I'm not yeah, defending Ed Sheeran, by him. the way. No, no, I, I am defending Ed Sheeran now. I'm no, but the whole beauty of this song, there's a duality. <laughs> for every lot. sweet, there's sour. For every yin, there's yang. For every Ed Sheeran, there's <laughs> Stormzy. It all to the table. It's also a coming of age tale. My favourite lyric was, uh, "Me and my friends have not thrown up in so long. Oh, how we've grown." Oh, Ed. I, mean, <laughs> I was just like, this guy. He revealed Stormzy at the Brits, didn't he? And slightly kind of I just like, awkward. I, I'm just like, I Stormzy's better awkward. than this. Yeah. <laughs> this platform, what is like, So disappointing. He did. Also, the original Shape of You, so without Stormzy, that broke Spotify's first day records with 6.9 million streams. So, so other like, people are loving this song, even if yeah. we're a bit... Griselda, what's your embarrassing summer song? So I have chosen Calvin Harris featuring Frank Ocean and Migos with Slide. Pipe up and turn up, pipe up. We gon' light up and burn up, burn up. Mama too hot like a, like what? Mama too hot like a furnace, furnace. I got a hundred G's, I'ma go, y'all. My diamonds gon' shine when the lights dark. You and I take a ride. So to me, that sounds kind of sun-drenched, California, taking life very easy. It's kind of slow, but it's got a good beat to it. It's sort of, it's like it's not kind of frenetic and like crazy the way that Ed Sheeran is trying very hard. But you've picked a dream team of kind of relatively <laughs> cool people, especially Frank I Ocean. I needed that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, like, it's great. It's like a low-key, it's a proper like summer banger in this sort of low-key way. But it's like if you get Frank Ocean on, you exactly. can't really go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, no, Similarly great. to Stormzy, I'm like, Frank, what are you doing? You don't need well, to do this. He's not stooped quite as low. 
This is kind of more like the track people want to hear on his album. Maybe this is where he like allows himself to let go and do his pop thing, like yeah. on other people's records. Yeah, but yeah, it's not jam. too poppy. It's got like a little bit of kind of melancholy. It's a bit reserved. But there's also the, the classic Calvin Harris like EDM underneath. Oh yeah, but I just actually love a little bit of Calvin Harris. <laughs> I do think he's the master of the summer hit. He sounds like summer. I mean, Gazzardo, you've heard this song like a hundred times, you said, yet you don't even kind of listen to that much music. No, I am not. <laughs> As you guys know, <laughs> I am not one to go to for the cutting edge of cool new music. But actually, I think the main way I sort of like imbibe music is cycling and people playing it out of their cars. And like whose car, who it is, what their car's like. and what. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we were in New York, we'd be listening to this on like a stoop. Yeah, it's true. So much cooler. <laughs> yeah, I do think, though, for me, that it's one of the things about a summer hit is it makes your life feel kind of cooler than it is somehow. Like, yeah. it makes London feel more sunny because you're listening to this yeah, they like, do, Californian yeah. funk, kind of this, like, cool song. Yeah. But actually, even if London is, like, a bit grey and wet, hmm. but I'm it like, feels cool because of the music. But I'm like, I don't know, is this, a thing, is this a thing just now, like, in the past couple of years, these summer songs that really, really specifically evoke summer? Because in the past, like, previous, like, summer hits have been stuff like you know, the weekends, like, can't feel my face, which is not a summery song at all. And I wonder if it's this whole Tropical House kind of vibe is just it popular now. It's, like, super, yeah. super summery, yeah. Tropical House is a good segment to yeah, your song. <laughs> Speaking of Tropical House. Yeah, so I've gone full lowbrow. Yes. Well, I just figured, and also, I don't know if we're equating lowbrow with popularity. That's a point to discuss, but... Anyway, I've gone for Justin Bieber with two songs, both of which they're not specifically his songs. He is just featured on them. Number one currently is a song called Despacito, which was a huge hit for a pair of Puerto Rican artists called Louis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee. Let's hear a clip because it is a banger. Just full confession, I like, love that song. Um, I think what qualifies it as extremely lowbrow is obviously Justin Bieber's <laughs> appearance on it. Apparently he heard the song when he was out in a club in like South America and like called up so allegedly Louis Fonsi and said, can I do a verse on this? So his Spanish on it sounds like fairly dexterous, but Justin Bieber then was discovered uh, performing the song live. This video emerged on, I think, Instagram of him having no clue what the lyrics were. <laughs> Instead of saying the lyrics, he said, I don't know the words, so I say Dorito. <laughs> it's just like, it, the way he's like desecrated this like, huge accomplishment in Latin music, I think really uh, kind of speaks to <laughs> Justin Bieber's uh, vibe. Come and move that in my direction. So thankful for that, it's such a blessing, yeah. Turn every situation into heaven, yeah. Oh, you are. And that's kind of song like I'm there at the barbecue I'm like in charge of the barbecue this song is playing and like you get lost in the moment and then three minutes later you've totally cocked up the whole barbecue yeah. everything's burnt but yeah I feel like Justin Bieber does ruin it to some extent yeah. like his singing is just a bit much for me it kind of like touches a nerve in a bad way <laughs> I, like, I like it I've lost track of how many sort of levels of irony I'm on with Justin Bieber but I 
think he had genuinely a great pop voice. He made his voice on a song makes makes it an incredible hit. Like always, he's a proper pop star. As he's well. a proper pop star, and I think he's, it's interesting that he's shed his sort of bad name. Justin Bieber was absolutely like persona non grata for so long, and then he like sort of disappeared and came back with that album Purpose. Yeah, and everyone was, was just like, good. "Oh my god, yeah, this who is, is this guy?" Good. <laughs> and now I mean, now Justin Bieber is kind of is he cool? He's kind of cool. You have to yeah, be I think he's kind of cool. I mean, the people he collaborates with are quite legitimate. Yeah. Speaking of people he collaborates with, Justin Bieber's other Billboard smash is, uh, well, it's really DJ Khaled's song, I'm the One. This is totally, totally mindless, and I love it. Yeah, you're looking at the truth, the money never lie, no. I'm the one, yeah. I'm the one early morning in the dawn, no, you want to ride now. I'm the one, yeah. I'm the one, yeah. Hear you sick of all those other so good we were just like properly zoned out <laughs> yeah. in the studio imagining it was we relaxing were, i was imagining i was in the video at like dj khaled's house where they're all like <laughs> it's the most pimp video it's so good <laughs> with that woman riding on a horse with like the most enormous breasts oh my you've God, ever seen I want to go to it, it is she could have been so a baywatch she could have been a baywatch. smooth link <laughs> <laughs> amazing okay so we've heard four songs we're going to decide now which... Uh, Gris- oh, hello. Griselda, this is my song. Uh, for 22 episodes, I've been trying to get my voice in this Chica. podcast. Hi. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know you could even do that. No. <laughs> so I would like to add my song for the summer mix. Oh, okay. A song this is that turning I'm... into a right free-for-all. <laughs> Anyone yeah. else? So I would like to uh, bring in Little Mix uh, with oh their God. single Power, also featuring Stormzy. <laughs> and it's, uh, I would say, a feminist hit with a random motorbike featured in it so uh, I'd love to know what you think you scored big points for the motorbike let's hear it First of all, let's think about the lyrics, which is, "You're the man, but I've got the, I've got the, I've got the power." Feminist, and then, <laughs> and then they say, "You make rain, but I make the, I make the, I make the shower." See what I did there? <laughs> That's rhyming. Back in your box. <laughs> can I, can I just play you the ending shocking. because it's amazing? <laughs> I don't know what the motorbike's about. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, that that's, Chica, um, no yeah, chance. You're not talking on the podcast again. The worst. I <laughs> do not feel empowered by that song. Sounded kind of from the eighties. Sounds pretty retro as well. It reminds me of like Schneider school Twain. discos. Yeah, oh. I found it stressful to listen to. <laughs> Let's try and come to some kind of consensus about what the biggest tune of the summer will be and what of those five tunes we like the most. Well. Despacito is currently sat on, I think, five weeks at the top of the chart, so it's got a pretty big head start. We've got the whole of summer ahead of us. <laughs> I think I think I'm the one might pivot to the post. I yeah, do you reckon? Yeah, I think that's going to do quite well because yeah. it's just like so sweet and sugary and summery. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to go with that. Calvin Harris. To... It's a bit too cool, maybe. It's a bit too slow. It's too out bit there. Too yeah. Yeah. And down with Ed Sheeran. Down with Ed Sheeran. Storms, <laughs> you can't bring it back. No. <laughs> Poor no. Ed Sheeran, but we don't we don't love Shape of You, no. Ed is not going to be appearing at John's Barbecue, but potentially Justin Bieber. Yeah, I'll switch it.
Okay, the lowbrow section is definitely over now. <laughs> yeah, enough of that. We're moving on to a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Elizabeth Strout. Yeah, Elizabeth Strout won her Pulitzer Prize for her book Olive Kitteridge in 2008. So good. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant set of kind of short stories, small town life in Maine, which is where she grew up. And so you get this sense of her knowing the people and the landscape very well. Listeners may, if you haven't read it, may have heard, may have seen rather the HBO TV version with Frances McDormand. Yeah, it's so good it went to TV and not lowbrow TV, but to the no. very best TV, some of the very best TV with yeah. HBO. HBO. Yeah. yeah, so that's really good. Won lots of Emmys. But her most recent book has just come out. It's called Anything is Possible. And what's the main theme of it, Griselda? She often writes about kind of small town America. Is that Yeah, and this is very much continuing that theme, which is in Olive Kitteridge and in My Name is Lucy Barton, which came last year. And Anything is Possible actually came out of My Name is Lucy Barton, which is about this woman who's in hospital, her mother's there, and she's sort of looking back at this very impoverished upbringing she had in the Midwest and quite a sort of dysfunctional family in this small town. And she becomes a writer and escapes and moves to New York. And when she's talking to her mother when she's in hospital, she's talking about all of these characters. And Elizabeth Strout has basically taken these characters and put them in this book, Anything is Possible. So it kind of feels almost like short stories. All of these interwoven lives are very like normal, unassuming, often uneducated people, but they have a lot sort of bubbling away under the surface. Should I take it on holiday with me? Or is it not, <laughs> not suited to, too serious for the beach? No, I don't think it is too serious for the beach. Her writing style is very simple, like very short sentences. It's not like showy, showy prose at all and very understated and just kind of, I was really moved by them actually. I loved the books. I read them pretty, pretty fast. They wouldn't be too difficult for the beach. I mean, they might be a little bit melancholic for the beach maybe. You know, a lot of these people are like (laughs) disappointments and frustrated hopes and dreams and it's quite in a low-key way, quite sad. So it was a real privilege to have her here at the FT. She's definitely one of the biggest literary voices in America. And here she is. I think in Anything is Possible, there are moments of darkness, but I think there are moments of darkness in everybody's life at different times. Portraying real life is what I've always wanted to do, and I'm interested in portraying characters who are really just ordinary people, just living their lives in a way that they would never expect to be written about, they would never expect to have their inner lives examined, probably even by themselves, but they do have inner lives because we all do. We all have an inner life that comes up against the outer life that we're living in. I love every single character that I write, and the thing for me which makes writing so different from the rest of life is that when I go to the page, I suspend all judgment on my characters. I just don't judge them at all, and that's so freeing, because in real life we're always judging other people. You know, I don't care if they're badly behaved. I mean, of course, readers have every right to care if they're badly behaved, but when I'm writing them, I don't don't care what they're doing. I just love them. I do think that all my books have to do with class in America. Only recently with this book has it been talked about, publicly in America anyway, and that's interesting to me because I think that we're in a time when we are thinking more about class and maybe talking about it for the first time. 
When I was writing the book, Trump was not yet president. But when I finished the book, I realized that, yes, absolutely, Amgesh, if they voted at all, they would have voted for Trump. Many people in that town would have, yes. If you think of class not so much as income level or not so much as education level, but if you think of class in terms of the power that a person feels in their lives, then you can realize that these people don't feel that powerful. I have an ideal reader, and it occurred to me a number of years ago that if I'm making up characters, I can make up a reader. <laughs> so I do. So I have an ideal reader that sort of sits with me as I write. The reader's neither female or male. It's a person who's patient, but they're not enormously patient. They're smart, but they're not super smart. But they're interested, but they need to be engaged. And so I write with that in mind. And it becomes a little bit of like a dance with the reader. You know, it's like, okay, what does the reader need now? Has there been too much noise on the page? Do we need to go to landscape? Do we need to, you know, what does the reader need? My parents were both, they were educated. They both had graduate degrees. They were educators themselves. My father was a science professor at the University of New Hampshire, and my mother taught English in the high school and also at the university. But we did not have a television, and the only magazines in the house were my father's science magazines and The New Yorker. Uh, No newspapers. And there was a radio that brought us the news. There was a great deal of isolation to my childhood. And I think that... The silence of that was probably very good for me in terms of making me a writer. And I, as a young age, my mother gave me notebooks and she'd say, write down what you did today. And so I did. And so I've always thought in terms of sentences. And then I read. Well, there were two towns that we lived in. We lived in New Hampshire and in Maine, and they were both small. In New Hampshire, there was the university town, although we lived outside of that in the woods. And in Maine, we lived on a long dirt road. There were a number of houses on that dirt road that belonged to my uh, great aunts. So I grew up with older people, and their very dry Maine accents were sort of the, the music of my youth, you know, when I went in, in and out of their houses like a squirrel you know they (laughs) they really didn't notice me too much and they were always sort of depressed and slightly grumpy and usually talking about their husband's last meal (laughs) I'm so glad Frank was able to have his mackerel I left high school a year early because I just didn't like high school. So I left and I went to college about an hour away at Bates College in Maine. And I loved it. I just loved it. That was my first sense of like, oh, there's a whole world out here. And then eventually I made my way to New York and that was just heaven. There were nothing but people. (laughs) There were just people everywhere. And, And I had grown up without seeing many people. And in New York, there's just people all over the place, on the streets, in the subway, on the buses. I love it. We live in New York City, but we do spend some time in in Maine. Whenever I'm back in Maine, 
It's just so different from New York. And every time I go back to Maine, I'm so struck with where are the people. And I always think, has something happened? And then I realize, no, this is just Maine. There are no, there might be one or two people walking down the sidewalk. It's just, but it always strikes me, even if it's just been a few weeks. And, and I feel a little more exposed in Maine because, you know, if I'm the person walking down the sidewalk, you know, I remember the church secretary said to me one day, oh, I see you out and about. And I thought, you do? <laughs> I mean, in New York, nobody sees you. They don't care. It's wonderful. So it's a very different way of living. I certainly wrote way past the time it made sense to keep going. I understood it wasn't quite right. I understood I wasn't quite good enough. And so I always kept thinking, well, let me try it this way. I was finally published, and my first book came out when I was 43 years old. It was successful, and... It was a very strange feeling to go from having written for so many years to becoming an author. There's a difference between being a writer and an author. And and so to be an author was like, it was all of a sudden like there was so much publicity around that book. And it was was a little frightening for me, actually. But I do remember people said, wow, this is like an overnight success. And I remember thinking, right, about 40-year overnight success. At one point when the work was not going so well, when I was trying to get started in this first novel, which eventually did come to be, I enrolled in a stand-up comedy class. And I did that because I kept thinking, what is it about my work that's not working? Why isn't it working? I thought there must be something that was not honest about it. I was interested in stand-up comedy because I realized um, that we laugh at things because they're true because somebody is saying the unsayable. And so I thought, what would come out of my mouth if I put myself in that sort of pressure cooker? And every week somebody would drop out because it was so frightening. And then those of us that finished had to, for a final exam, we had to perform at the comic strip in New York City. And I did. And they laughed. I think it really did take probably a couple years off my life. It was so frightening. But the point is, my instinct was absolutely right, that through that routine, I discovered, because I was making fun of myself for being a white woman from New England, and I really didn't know until then that I was a white woman from New England. I didn't know it. I was so white, I didn't know it. And I was so New England, I didn't know it. And that's when I realized, okay, this is my place and time in history. The extent of autobiography in my work is just that I am in every character I write. There are some parallels between myself and Lucy Barton in My Name is Lucy Barton, but Lucy Barton is not me, and and I understood that right away. She crosses tremendous class lines, and that's what was interesting to me about her, and I thought, what does it feel like to come from that level of poverty and to cross these class lines? Anything is Possible by Elizabeth Strout is published by Viking and is out now. I urge you to read it before the summer's out. So, John, since this is goodbye, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot and ask you what you have learned from our 22 episodes of doing the podcast together. You didn't tell me you were going to put me on the spot. So I'm going to fire some names at you of people who you and I have both interviewed over the past episodes. And I want you to tell me what you learned 
about those people. What I've learned about them or from them? Or about life, generally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what wisdom have you taken away? Oh, okay, first up, Jude Law. Man wears no socks. Will Self. He was the first person to vape in our studio. He was really cool. I really enjoyed interviewing him, actually. Deliciously Ella. <sighs> My diet is terrible. Simon Sharma. Um, he loves Beyonce. I also did my best to be as highbrow as Poss. Kate Tempest. Super intense. Also, she kind of just blew my head about how many different things she does all at the same time. Writes books, poetry, spoken word, music. Nish Kumar. Very funny, but his jokes take a long time to tell. So if anyone who's ever had a guest appearance on the pod, who has been your favourite? Um... I always like the tap on the shoulder of an FT colleague the day before we're recording, asking them to be on the pod and then just the look of horror on their face and <laughs> panic. And we're both like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. It'll be super relaxed. Just a chat. Yeah, just a chat. That's our favourite line. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's enough of putting me on the spot. Um, I'm really looking forward to season three and what you do with it. Presumably it's all planned. It's all totally structured and ready and you're relaxed. Yeah, you know me, Miss Organised. <laughs> it's, all, it's all in the can. I will be so annoyed if it's actually all prepared and it becomes <laughs> the most smooth running thing <laughs> it will, it will, undoubtedly. Ugh, okay. No, we will, we will be back later in the summer. Okay, we're off on holiday, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to leave comments about Series 1 and 2, please do so on iTunes. Yeah, please do leave us a review. Send us an email, tweet us. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or wherever you get podcasts. And you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been John Sonia and Griselda Murray-Brown. And our music is composed and produced by Fatim. 